Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Francine Foss, Anish Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Foss is a professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is associate professor of surgical oncology and director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, you'll hear a conversation about clinical trials for advanced lung cancer with Dr. Roy Herbst. Dr. Herbst is Ensign Professor of Medicine and Professor of Pharmacology and also Chief of Medical Oncology at Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. Here's Anise Chagpar. Roy, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about what you do in the context of lung cancer at Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital? Sure. Um, well, you know, as you probably know, lung cancer is the number one cause of cancer death uh, worldwide. Uh, so it's a major uh, medical problem. So we really look at, at the Yale Cancer Center at ways that we can improve the outcomes for patient with, uh, patients with lung cancer. And one of the best ways to do that is to better understand the cancer uh, through molecular profiling, uh, to look at the different genes, the different proteins, the different constituents of the, of the tumor that cause it to grow, understand what's driving a tumor, and then try to match the patient with the best clinical trial. And we're doing this in a number of ways. You know, right now we have well over a dozen trials that we're, we're uh, studying in, in lung cancer uh, for patients with all different stages of disease and different types of disease. So, you know, you've, you've brought in a few concepts that I want to kind of take individually. The first is this whole concept of molecular profiling and um, figuring out what genes, what constituents, as you put it, drive these cancers. So do all cancers drive based on molecular uh, abnormalities and, and genetic mutations? Um, or are other factors at play as well? How do we figure out... Um, what really causes cancer to grow? Well, by definition, a cancer cell is abnormal. Uh, it's growing out of control. So yes, there is some reason why that, that cancer cell is growing. Uh, what we've learned um, over the course of the last 15, 20 years is that all lung cancers are not the same. In fact, almost no two are exactly the same. Hmm. By that, we know that the molecular drivers, the characteristics, the, the switches in the cell uh, can be very different between patients. So if we gave all patients the same therapy, let's say the same chemotherapy, it might have some effect, but in some it might be very effective, and in some it might have no effect at all. So what we really need to do is divide and subdivide patients based on our understanding of what's causing that tumor to grow into clinical studies uh, that are most appropriate for that patient. One good example that we just started, actually, is a trial that you know I have a, a national leadership role in called the Lung Map Trial, the Lung Master Protocol. So let me tell you how it works. So let's say a patient has lung cancer, and this is for a very specific type of lung cancer, squamous cell lung cancer. It's about 20 to 25% of the lung cancers. Tend to occur people who have smoked. Not always, but most people have smoked. And these patients come in, and they have a cancer, and they've already failed one chemotherapy uh, treatment. That might be someplace in Connecticut. That might be in another state in the country. It might have been at Yale. So what we do is we look at that patient and say, okay, we need to now figure out what to do next. Now, in the old days, what we would do is we'd say, well, here's a drug, we'll try it. Or we might say, here's a clinical trial, we'll try that. But now we hopefully can do one step better. 
What we do is we actually take the tissue, the biopsy that that patient's had, if in fact there isn't enough tissue from that biopsy, we actually have resources within the trial to obtain a new biopsy, a new piece of tissue, and we then send that off, and within 14 days, two weeks, we have analysis of over 250 different genes, different uh, processes in that uh, cancer that may or may not be causing it to grow. And then based on that, we then uh, assort that patient to one of five different drug trials. So basically what we're doing is we're finding the right drug for that patient at the right time. And we're doing this actually at Yale, but it's actually also open at over 400 sites around the country. So it's a national effort to try to match the patient to the right drug. Now, will this be more effective? We don't know yet. Uh, we assume that it will be based on what we know about molecular biology, but that's why we're doing the trials. And we're trying to get these trials uh, available throughout Connecticut. Uh, patients are coming to Yale from other sites um, uh, throughout the country. But the good thing is these trials are open at many sites around the country uh, in community settings because we want to take the science and the understanding that we've generated, you know, myself and my colleagues, and then translate that uh, to as many patients as possible to help them benefit um, and get the most benefit from these agents. So this is really what we talk about when we talk about personalized medicine, right, um, where, uh, where we are looking at these genetic mutations, um, these molecular biology uh, alterations, and, and trying to pick out what therapies might be best for them. So when you look at these 400 mutations, these 400 genes, um, you can actually, we have the drugs that will target each of these for these five clinical trials? We do. So what we've done is we, we've uh, entered into a public-private partnership. So um, groups and companies, drug companies that make these drugs, you know, have these compounds. In the case of this trial, um, uh, four of them are oral agents. Uh, one is IV. And what we basically do is the, the drugs are, are made by the companies. But, you know, if they're going to try to do a trial without this mechanism that I'm describing, it's very hard for them to enroll patients. And the reason for that is many of these abnormalities, which I, what I didn't tell you at first, occur in very small percentages. So, for example, uh, one, one abnormality in something called FGFR, uh, for those interested, that's fibroblast growth factor receptor, occurs in perhaps 10% of patients with lung cancer. That means that one out of 10 people uh, will have that abnormality and have the potential to benefit from that trial. Now, if we were doing that trial as a single trial at Yale, uh, and we have tried that in the past, you know, many people would come in and many would be disappointed because they weren't a candidate for the trial. So the first thing that you know, is a concern to me as a clinician is that we don't have something to offer our patient. But it's also quite you know, uh, unsatisfying um, from the clinical trial point of view as well because you can't find the patients to go on the trial. And, of course, the more people that are treated on the trials, if we, we find that drugs work, that gets them approved and available throughout the country. So it's really not helping anyone. So with this new mechanism that I mentioned, we, we profile the patient for a number of different genes, and we've picked five different drugs, five different pathways that we hope will include almost all the patients. So this way, if a patient doesn't get arm A, they can get arm B or C or D. And, um, you know, so far it's working well. Um, actually, just came off a call a little while ago today. And, um, you know, as many as um, 20 people are now enrolled nationwide. It's only been open for a couple of months. And, and the numbers are, are climbing as, as more of the word gets up uh, and, and out there. You know, certainly that programs like this are helping with that. So this is just one area where I think we're, we're really using technology and getting that technology to impact on patient care. 
And as you know, Anise, there's often a lag between a new technology, whether it be a surgical technology or a, a medical breakthrough in understanding how, how cells work, to translating that into benefit for the patients. So I think one of the goals that we have here at the Yale Cancer Center is to try to accelerate that. It's something we should be doing as a, as a teaching hospital and one that's focused on cancer. And it certainly sounds that that's uh, something that this is doing um, and trying to really figure out which drugs are the best for which patients and tailoring those. But I wonder whether, Roy, you find that patients sometimes have some trepidation about being part of a clinical trial. It's great. You're going to profile my tumor. Why can't you just give me the drug that is best for me rather than enrolling me on a clinical trial? Do you ever get patients who ask you that? Sure, and, and certainly I would want that for myself as well. You, you know, you have a cancer, you're scared, uh, you have a new diagnosis, you want to get the drug that's most likely to work. The problem is with many of these new therapies, they're not proven to be of benefit yet, and in some cases they may even have new side effects that one might not have with a standard of care. So as someone who is running the trials or is participating in, in the studies uh, as, 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 a, as a treating physician, uh, you have a certain equal poise. You don't know, is, is this drug better or not? So you have to do the trial to figure it out. Now, trials come in different varieties. Uh, in the early stage, and uh, an area I'm very excited about right now at Yale is our phase one program, the earliest drugs that, that come out of uh, testing you know, from uh, preclinical animal models um, and, and are making it to the clinic. We have, a, we have a big push now to build our phase one program uh, we have Dr. Paul Ader and Dr. Patrick LaRusso, both within my section of medical oncology, uh, who are leading this effort. Um, in, in these studies, everyone gets the drug. The, the downside is it's quite early, and in some cases we're still figuring out what the right dose or, or schedule, how often to give the drug. But, you know, in that, those cases, everyone gets the agent. Uh, it may benefit. It may not. You know, of course, we don't do anything where we don't have a good scientific basis for doing it. Then there are phase two studies, which are larger cohorts. We've already uh, you know, tested the drug in the, in the first patients, so we have a little bit more information regarding its safety. There we're looking for uh, activity, uh, in, in a, often in a specific subset of patients with specific abnormalities. And then there's the phase three trial, which I just described, like the lung map. I think that we, what we try to do is we try to find the best trial for any given patient. Certainly if uh, a, pa a patient qualifies for a trial where they might get the study drug in a phase two, we offer it to them. One area of great interest right now is uh, immunotherapy for, for lung cancer. Uh, Dr. Scott Gettinger in our clinic, along with uh, our team, uh, myself and others, we actually have a number of trials right now that are looking at ways to enhance the body's own immune system against a tumor. And uh, we're quite excited about that. Uh, I think we probably have you know, one of the biggest portfolios of, of, of drugs in this area in, in the region. Um, and we also um, are on trying to uh, look at the science behind how these drugs work or, importantly, don't work so we can figure out how more patients might benefit. And it's quite exciting. You know, we, we, we now know that, you know, the immune system in, in many cancers uh, can't recognize the tumor because the tumor creates a force field uh, that keeps the immune cells from killing it. And uh, there are now therapies, and many of them developed through technology uh, that was pioneered by Dr. Li Ping Chen, uh, a scientist here at Yale, actually, where we can actually use antibodies. They're called PD-1 or PDL one and, and these antibodies, they're intravenous drugs, um, can actually break this uh, force field uh, on the, the tumor so the immune cells can attack it. And, and we're seeing, you know, wonderful results, not in all patients, but in many, 
But it's again, it's another area that, that really is uh, uh, helping us to, to treat uh, patients, learn how to treat even more patients in the future, and hopefully from the efforts of myself and the, and the rest of the team, uh, patients will go on to clinical trials so that the results will result in these drugs becoming available as a standard of care. And that's what we're really trying to do. You know, we want to uh, you know, have the innovative approaches to these diseases, uh, give patients a fresh look, and then um, study these in very uh, rigorous ways. Of course, uh, patient safety being a primary concern, uh, and, and uh, if the drugs do, uh, in fact, uh, are pass the bar, then they become approved therapies uh, for all to uh, receive throughout the country. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like uh, certainly immunotherapies and targeted therapies are, are two of the hottest topics in cancer research now, and it's a very exciting field. Um, and I think the real key point is is what you said at the top of the show, which is, you know, historically, we give patients chemotherapy, it's standard of care, but it doesn't really work for everybody. So in a sense, what you're trying to do is develop tomorrow's therapies uh, today. And the way that people can help us to do that and to, to receive those therapies is by participating in those clinical trials. Uh, absolutely. But I also think it's uh, it's, a, it's important for people to realize that the clinical trials give them access to some of these newer agents earlier on. And, you know, none of these immunotherapies that I mentioned, for example, are approved agents. The only way to get them is on clinical trials. Uh, and again, you know, uh, we still don't know the, the full spectrum of, of side effects associated with these agents. And, uh, of course, you know, if you unleash the power of the immune system against the tumor, uh, you might have some backlash against some of the normal cells in the body. Um, but that said, uh, you know, we're talking about a disease like lung cancer, where many of the people that I see, I see mostly patients uh, with disease that's already failed therapy. They're coming from uh, other places uh, around Connecticut, New York, uh, someplace else in the United States, another country. These patients are looking for a fresh look, for, for, for new hope, and, and, of course, understanding the risks and, and unproven benefits. Uh, clinical trials offer a, a, great, a great promise. And, you know, one thing that I feel very strongly about is, you know, at a place like Yale University where we have, you know, great strength in, in basic science of, of cancer, but also in uh, clinical uh, uh, care of patients, we want to try to match the two. And that's, that's what we call translational research. And one of my, my roles at Yale is to really promote that. And the types of programs I tell you about uh, now really are in that uh, direction. We're going to learn much more about uh, translational medicine and how we are really moving from the basic science to the bedside to improve patient care in lung cancer with my guest, Dr. Roy Herbst, right after we take a short break for Medical Minute. Stay tuned. The American Cancer Society estimates that in 2014, over 1,500 people would be diagnosed with colorectal cancer in Connecticut and nearly 150,000 nationwide. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, and as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Patients with colorectal cancer have more hope than ever before due to increased access to advanced therapies and specialized care. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers like the one at Yale and at Smilo Cancer Hospital to test innovative new treatments for colorectal cancer. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of the disease by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatments. 
This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. Roy Herbst. We're talking about lung cancer. Now, Roy, at the top of the show, you know, we've spent a lot of time in the first half talking about various kinds of new therapies, immunotherapies, targeted therapies, some of the really cool things that you're doing really to move this field forward. One of the things that was striking for me, though, at the top of the show was how prevalent lung cancer is and how many people it kills every year in this country. Um, Can you talk about that in the context of the research that's being done? I mean, are we going to make any breakthroughs? Are we really going to lower that mortality rate? And if so, how? Right. Well, I think the answer is yes, we already see the impact we're making. So lung cancer is uh, quite common. Um, It uh, affects uh, almost 200,000 people a year in the United States. Uh, Worldwide each year, uh, there are probably close to 2 million people who die from it. Uh, It's just uh, an incredibly prevalent disease. You know, one of the main reasons for that, of course, uh, are the toxins which cause lung cancer, the primary one being smoking. Uh, though uh, we're finding that only 80% of lung cancer patients now have a history of smoking. So it's a disease both of smokers, former smokers, and never smokers, people who have never smoked. Um, so so uh, a little different in, in each of those cases, and I'll tell you that. But, you know, the key thing to lung cancer is to uh, uh, detect it early. Uh, one of the things we know is that lung cancer has a tendency to spread or metastasize. So uh, we do want to find it early. That's why people with significant smoking histories um, you know, um, over the age of 55, we recommend that they get screened uh, with a CAT scan once a year. We do that here at Yale. Uh, I think that's important. Even when you find the lung cancers early, uh, there still is a chance that it can come back, but it's much less than if you, you wait till it, it occurs in a more advanced stage. Uh, so that, that's very important. Um, one thing that I've seen over the course of my career in the last 20 years are amazing advances in treating what we call locally advanced lung cancer. Uh, sometimes lung cancer occurs in a lung uh, with, a, with a nodule, a, a mass, uh, with lymph nodes present within the lung. It's already started to spread. And uh, when you combine different modalities, uh, I'm a medical oncologist. I usually, my modality is usually chemotherapy. Uh, I work very closely with radiation oncologists who use radiation therapy uh, to target the, the cancer and the lymph nodes. And then in many cases, surgery is an option. So using those three modalities together, uh, which can be done quite well at a place like uh, the Yale Cancer Center, Smile Cancer Hospital, where we can actually um, work uh, as a team. Uh, this morning, uh, the morning we're filming this show, um, I was um, uh, at a tumor board. We discussed all of our cases from last week. That's what's done at a, a care center like ours, where we review the cases uh, with all the different uh, people present, the surgeons, the medical oncologists, the radiation oncologists, the, the pulmonologists, the, the other caregivers, to try to, to bring a, a very uh, uh, coordinated effort uh, regarding the care. So I think we're making a big impact there, and I've seen that as well. But the area where I think we're really having an amazing impact right now is in the advanced disease setting, which are more than half the patients. More than half the patients with lung cancer present the disease has already left the lung. So a surgeon like yourself, Anise, it wouldn't wouldn't help to cut it out because you're still dealing with cancer not only in the lung but in the liver, 
or in, or, or in the adrenal glands or, or in a bone someplace. So that's where we have to find a systemic therapy, something that goes into a vein or goes down the, the mouth as a pill and works throughout the body. And we now know uh, that certain uh, tumors, uh, especially in those patients who haven't smoked or haven't smoked in many years, uh, might have a a certain uh, gene mutation and something called epidermal growth factor receptor. And if we give the patient um, a certain drug, their tumor can shrink, you know, in 80% of the cases uh, with, with very little toxicity. It's still a small proportion of the patients, and sometimes they become resistant, so we have to treat them again with a, with a new agent. But that's great progress that we've seen in this disease. And there are two or three other uh, uh, mutations, something called ALK, ALK, something called RAS1. So about 15 to 20% of the patients, we have these new therapies where we can give an oral agent, and we see wonderful results. What I wake up each day worrying about are the other 80%. You know, what are we going to do for those patients where you take your tumor and you take it to the Yale West campus, you know, right, right on exit 42 of 95, and, and you sequence a tumor, and you don't find anything that you can match to the right drug? For those patients, we've got to be even more creative. We've got to say, okay, maybe we need a combination of drugs. We need a clinical trial where we know that a, a certain pathway, for example, it's called KRAS. It occurs in 25% of patients with adenocarcinoma in the lung a type of lung cancer. We know that we can't target that directly yet, though I'll tell you we are trying, but maybe we can target two or three uh, uh, pathways downstream, meaning we know what this, this is the concert master that turns on two or three different uh, uh, processes within the cell. Maybe we can combine a few drugs together, and we're doing that. We do that in a trial we call the battle trial. We have a combination of drugs that targets uh, KRAS. Or, you know, we, we, as I told you earlier, immunotherapy. In many of these patients, we know that the cancer has mutations. The immune system should be all over this cancer. But we also know the tumor has adapted and figured out how to protect itself uh, from this. Okay, well, this is the case where we have to block that immune checkpoint, and we have drugs and trials to do that. And, you know, in our lung clinic right now, uh, Dr. Scott Gettinger and, and myself Uh, Dr. Sarah Goldberg, the three of us have several trials uh, between us that are uh, using different agents, different combination of agents to to activate the immune system against cancer. And uh, we we don't stop there, though. Uh, we, we, We take the tissue from these patients either before they're treated or after they're treated, and we work with our laboratory scientists, as you can only do at a place like Uh, Yale at a big teaching hospital where you have uh, a cancer center with all those resources, and we're figuring out in those who respond and do well, why, and in those who don't, how can we do better? How can we combine things together? So these are, this is the promise of lung cancer. Uh, it, it, it is a very uh, devastating disease, but we're trying to find new things to offer hope to patients, figure out the right way to treat each patient in a personalized way, and of course, you know, you know do as, as best we can to, to prevent it whenever we can. And for that, we have a very strong uh, uh, smoking cessation clinic, for example, uh, where we, we work with patients. Uh, if we treat them with their cancer and, and they're still smoking, we try to prevent them from uh, smoking anymore. And Dr. Ben Toll and others in our group are very actively involved in that. So, Roy, it certainly sounds like you're, you're doing a lot, but um, there are a couple of points that I picked up on and that I, I would bet some of our listeners might be thinking about, too. The first is that you said that there's a good proportion of people now who get lung cancer who never smoked. And the second thing is that, you know, the best thing to do in terms of finding cancer early is to get screened, but the people who are getting screened are heavy smokers over the age of 50. So 
if you're sitting on the couch and it's Sunday evening and you're listening to Yale Cancer Center Answers and you've never smoked and you're thinking, my goodness, I still have a potential to get lung cancer. You just told me that a lot of the lung cancers present late when there are fewer therapies available and it's more challenging. What do those patients do? I mean, should they get screened? If so, how? If not, then what do they do? Do they feel like they're a ticking time bomb that they may get lung cancer? Should people go and get some sort of genetic testing to see whether they're genetically predisposed to get lung cancer? How does that work? Well, um, those are many questions. Let's take one at a time. Uh, For the person who's uh, currently smoking, um, and uh, if they're uh, over 55, I probably would suggest uh, they, um, they get screened. Um, the first thing, I, of course, I would like them to do is to stop smoking. Um, I recognize how difficult that is. I actually chair a, a subcommittee on tobacco and cancer for the American Association for Cancer Research. And uh, we've, we actually know that 18% of Americans still smoke. Now, if you look at the uh, 50% or more that smoked 50 years ago before the first Surgeon General's uh, report, that's great. But still, 18% are a lot of Americans. So, um, you know, we need to work with people, um, whether it be with behavioral methods, with, with medications, uh, to help them to, to, to stop smoking. Um, and, uh, of course, as they do that, we want to screen them, uh, you know, in case they have developed a nodule and, and screening has been shown to uh, save lives. So that's, that's one thing that we definitely want to do. Now, for those people who have never smoked, and that's good, don't start, um, you know, um, there are other ways that one can be exposed to the toxins that can cause lung cancer, whether it be environmental, whether you live in New York or uh, Montana. You know, you have different exposure in the air. Um, it might be that you're exposed to radon, which is quite common around here, unfortunately. Asbestos, many of the old structures here have asbestos as well. Those can also cause lung cancer. Or it might be that it's a genetic uh, cause. We don't really yet know too much about the genetics. And, uh, you know, there are some families with predisposition to lung cancer. We haven't completely figured out how that works. We do know that if someone has not smoked, they tend to be more prone to get this epidermal growth factor receptor uh, driven lung cancer. Uh, the only good news there is that it seems to be a bit more treatable than the, uh, the standard uh, lung cancer. Um, but um, again, you know, we're learning each day. That's why we profile patients. We understand what's driving the tumor and try to match the, the right drugs to, to each patient. Uh, but it is a common disease, um, and um, it, it really does need a very close uh, analysis of, of the tissue and the, and the tumor type and also the stage and, and how to treat it, you know, either simply with uh, medication, uh, chemotherapy or oral targeted therapies, or in many cases you want to use surgery or, or radiation therapy, and that's the type of thing that we can help with in our, in our clinic. So if you've, if you've never smoked, um, you're not a candidate for screening with CT scan, right? In, in, in the, the, the standard guidelines would say no. Uh, normally it's people that have what we call 30-pack years of smoking history, meaning you've smoked uh, one pack a day for 30 years or two packs a day for 15 years uh, and, or any combination thereof. But, you know, these, there are no absolutes here. You know, um, I think a, a discussion with your, your physician, you know, based on your, your relative smoking history, uh, based on your, uh, your family history, um, is, is, is all quite, quite reasonable. Um, you know, but clearly the best way to, uh, to deal with lung cancer is to prevent it, and primary prevention is, is important. Um, but, yes, you know, 
you know, sometimes it occurs and, and you can't find any, any known cause. It's just, you know, which is unfortunately the case with so many cancers. So, but one thing that you can do is you can be cognizant of, of kind of the, the symptoms of, of early lung cancers and, and make sure that you seek appropriate medical care. So can you talk about how lung cancer might present um, before it becomes widely metastatic? Right. So what I see, you know, and I've been doing this for quite some time, is, you know, typically what you see is someone who's had uh, uh, some sort of chest symptoms, whether it be cough or or shortness of breath. You know, many times uh, they believe they have a pneumonia, which just doesn't get better after several courses of antibiotics. And normally then the primary caregiver uh, will will check a, a chest X-ray or, or, or a CT scan. Uh, not quite as often, but, but more often than I'd like to to, to see uh, patients will present with a cancer already metastatic, meaning they might have, be having uh, symptoms of fatigue or, or bone pain because the cancer's in, uh, gone to a, a bone. Uh, they might be have central nervous system symptoms because the cancer's invaded uh, their brain, um, or, or they might, might have issues with, with their liver. Um, you know, that happens in some cases as well. Um, but really, the most most common thing is a cough. Sometimes the cough will have some blood tinged sputum, meaning you're, you're bringing up some some a little bit of blood. Um, but but again, you know, very often, you know, lung cancers are diagnosed, you know, incidentally. You know, just in the last week, I I know of one cancer where someone went in for a, a GU procedure, and the CAT scan happened to take to, to to pick something up in the bottom of the lung. In another case, you know, someone trips across the street, they end up in the emergency room, they get an x-ray. I usually tell those patients, you're quite lucky, you know, yeah. because we're, we're finding it early. Um, wouldn't it be great, Anise, if someday we could, we could find it with a blood test? Or, or, or now they even have, um, you know, condensed, um, uh, you know, breath, conden- con- uh, breath you know, you, you, you actually breathe uh, the condensation from your breath. You know, people can, can pick up, you know, early signs of lung cancer. There are some studies now. There are certain dogs that can can smell, you know, the earliest signs of lung cancer. All these types of things that are are, are being uh, discussed, and you see this at meetings and in the literature. We've got to find even earlier uh, detection methods for how do you know that someone has has this abnormality? Because clearly, we know that once a cancer has spread or metastasized, it becomes much more difficult to treat. Dr. Roy Herbst is Ensign Professor of Medicine and Professor of Pharmacology and also Chief of Medical Oncology at Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.